This is WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station, streaming online at WVEW.org. And you are listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. You can also find us at Facebook and on iTunes Indigo Radio. The views of this show are those of the guest and host, not the radio station. Indigo Radio is a group of area educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. My name is Anna Milani, and I'm here with Michaela Sims. And last week on the show, we played part one of an interview with Latif Taylor, a human resource generalist at Rikers Island, working with the staff at the jail. Rikers Island is the main jail complex in New York City. It's a 415-acre island that sits between Bronx and Queens. We also had Justin Helipolale in the studio with us talking about their work with Great Falls Books Through Bars and at the Franklin County Jail in Greenfield. Today, we continue our conversation about prisons, mass incarceration, and we'll delve into prison abolition versus reform. So we'll be playing part two of our interviews with both Latif and Justin. We're going to get started right now with the second part uh, of the interview with Latif. And Rikers Island has a history of abuses and neglect of inmates and violence within the jail. And so Latif and I are talking about that. Um, So we're going to play that and we'll be back. Rikers has a reputation and has been pretty notorious for um, different abuses that have taken Mm -hmm. place there. And today, actually, I was reading as I was looking into this, an article about a trans woman that is suing right now the Department of Corrections and uh, New York State, or the city, sorry. Yeah. Um, she alleged that she was uh, beaten by several guards. She had a broken jaw, some teeth knocked out, and she was left with two black eyes. And there's, of course, like you know, there's so many different stories that have come out of there. When you hear stories like that, who do you feel is accountable to that, and and how should they be held accountable? Well, whenever there's a case, whether it's criminal or it's a civil case, um, that's brought to any municipal organization, those things need to play out within a court of law. I mean, I really couldn't even comment on it because I don't have, I don't have, the, I don't know, the, I don't know the case directly, and I don't have evidence. You know, so those things need to play out. And of course, if there's anything, and and how and how and how the past has proven, when any employees of the city are found guilty of abuses or crimes, they're always held accountable for those crimes. You know, so um, unlike some other uh, uniform services throughout the country, uh, Rikers is under a lot of scrutiny. You know, and and maybe and deservedly so, right? So, um, but yeah, I mean, their official stance, you know, like, it's not my official stance, but the official stance of the DOC is always that they accept zero, they have a zero tolerance policy for any kind of abuses um, or corruption within the, within the agency, and anyone who's found guilty, obviously, will have to face the consequences. The New York Mayor Bill De Blasio promised last March to close Rikers, and then I just saw that this week he announced. Hmm that the first part of the closing will happen. It's a facility with 600 men. I would love your thoughts on that and if you think that that will happen this summer. Um, they, they haven't set a date. Okay. So as far as uh, when 
GMDC will close because that's the one that we publicly, that which the city has publicly announced that they will close. Um, so yeah, the one facility that they've publicly announced to close will be GMDC. Um, and But there has not been a date, but uh, this year is the target uh, for that facility closing. Um, now, I'm not sure if it doesn't happen in the summertime or if it happens in the fall. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's a step. I mean, it's, I think more importantly is not so much what do I think about it closing? It, it's more important. Is just, are are we as a society and as a city moving towards a direction where facilities can close? So it's closing. We just can't close buildings. You know what we need to do is work on actual reforming our policy of policing and our policies of incarceration. You know so that can include as Cuomo is, is pushing for to remove cash cash bails. You know what I mean? So we have a lot of work to do as a society and not to compart Again, uh, a correction department's job, really, right, is care, custody, control of people who are incarcerated and awaiting trial in jails uh, within the city or their sentence to a year or less. That is it. But a correction department is not a judicial system. A correction department is not a bail system. And also, a judge hears trials, Right? A prosecutor prosecutes crimes, you know, so whether someone gets a speedy trial is never going to be up to anyone or not on, in, in, the, in the jail system. It's just it's just not separate. It's separate. That's just not how our, it's not how our legal system works. Um, whether someone is a, whether someone is arrested uh, for what, quote unquote, is broken windows policing, still not something that happens in a jail. You know, so that's how we police our communities. You know, that's how our police department interfaces with our with our citizens. So that, again, another thing that would not fall within it. So it, it's why we can't uh, boil this down to just Rikers Island. It's moving in a direction it needs to move, move to. But, again, there's a lot of factors in place. Uh, we just can't. I don't think anyone, even in a society, we just can't close. You know, so there has to be something. Something has to happen with the population in order for us to be able to close the jails, you know, faster. So as the population continues to drop, then we may see more closing, but that is to be that remains to be seen. Uh, one of the major crimes a lot of people are arrested for is theft of services, you know, which is typically people jumping the subway. Um, now, again, we don't police the streets, right? So you know, there's a lot of ways that we can reduce these. Um, we can reduce the jail population, and the city's moving towards that. And I think. Um, what we're seeing now with the population and with the closing of the facility is a clear indication that it is going that direction. How fast it will happen, we're going to have to see. I think that is something that confuses me a little bit, or mm -hmm. I'm, I don't know what the answer is here, and so I'd love your thoughts. When you say, you know, you, you don't police the streets, it's true. My question is, who polices inside the, like, the officers and when we think about these abuses that are happening? Mm -hmm. And it goes back to, again, that question of like accountability of like who is who should be held accountable for what is happening? Because I understand like a lot of what you're saying is that a lot of your job is like trying to help these conditions so that there are not these abuses happening. So people are not stressed out or people are not that their work environment is better. Right. We have an aging population of staff that have learned to do a job a certain way and they behave a certain way. And then we have people who 
unfortunately, unfortunately have been socialized by that system. So if the system has always been violent, if the conditions have always been violent, that's basically how, and you've learned to survive in that environment. Um, it's going to take some time for me personally to be able to adjust to that situation too. So there's a, there's a lot of work that, that needs to be done. There's mm-hmm. a lot of healing that needs to be done uh, in a lot of places. So when we talk about holding people accountable. Of course, uh, it's up to leadership to always hold staff accountable. Um, it's up to other staff to hold staff accountable. But it's also up to us um, as organizations across the U.S. to provide better, better training um, and to continue to support staff and continue to encourage these practices. But at the same time, you know, we're talking about a large group of, large group of employees, and while no abuses uh, can be accepted, you know, what we want to do is continue to reduce it until no longer we see these abuses uh, within our system. That was uh, Latif Taylor that you were listening to. This is Anna for Indigo Radio. We're going to go to a quick song and then come back to the rest of Latif's interview. And the song that we're going to play is a song for Khalif Broder. Uh, he, we talked a little bit about him last week. He was arrested for allegedly stealing a backpack in 2010. He was only 16 years old. And he was placed in Rikers. He ended up being there for three years without any charges. He always maintained his innocence. And he spent a lot of time in solitary. Uh, he was released, and sadly, in 2015, he committed suicide. Um, we're going to play this song. It's called Khalif's Song. At 16, some view it as life's prom. Optimism high, who knows what you might find. Khalif Broder, a young man with a bright mind at the wrong place and damn sure the wrong time. Imagine leaving a party smile on face, reflecting on good moments that just took place. Clueless, didn't even come close to the bait. Robbed by the system, three years, no case. We live in a time with many things great, but our feeling for what's right, I debate not to hate. It's a pretty big challenge for me to keep my faith when the whole entire system didn't care for his fate. Smile on the face, gone, he's starting to look mad, facing six grown men years just for a book bag. Felony charges pressed from a kid he never met. No investigation check, there was zero respect. Jail bars pressed. Nothing but stress, the laws to protect failed three lays of neglect bill set. But your family can't reach, hands begin to shake, legs heavy on the feet. Read what you sow, but no wrong actions to teach. Mind full of nerves, waiting for somebody to speak. But backs just turn, everybody leaves. Instead of going home, right this way, you gon' sleep. Tears in your eyes, and now it's hard to breathe. You told them your story, why won't no one believe? You just wanna leave, but freedom ain't free. Kidnapping by the system in the first degree. Looking in the mirror, know you're a man of peace. But all anyone sees is a man of the streets. Young minority, something is hard to be. He was misunderstood by the badges and law degrees. Careers with integrity discredited Mr. Khalif. Symbolically and logically, all have believed. But I guess they'd rather see a broken legacy. Just another false stat for all their memories. A young man's mind is fading helplessly. Deaf ears to his pleas who run out of energy. Then the system will achieve nobody to appease. Who just pity himself, give up and cop a plea. But he didn't. But he did it. He did it. He did it. He did it. 
violent criminals fighting for survival way beyond literal he went from waking up to school getting dressed and ready to phone calls that easily could turn deadly no place for innocence an outstanding citizen drastic measures thought with changes so eminent life grew bleak hours became days days became weeks has it all reached its peak definition of a nightmare all it did was repeat is life worth living does the world he could leave hung that sheep real high yellow words goodbye seals dropped you after just to lump your eye they beat you down didn't feed you how weak from naive you hear the stomach growl when the da keeps offering those pleas but you rather die at high than down on your knees reflection on everything with that comes a list that was uh, Drez J with Khalif's song. Uh, and we're going to go to the last uh, part of our interview with Latif. And we'll be right back. People from my neighborhoods and I've had people uh, and people within my family have spent time in Rikers Island, have spent time incarcerated in prison systems, you know, not just in, in New York City, but even in uh, California or Texas uh, in, in, in Georgia. So. I know the I know the effects that incarceration has, but I also know the effects crime has. You know, I know the effects that in poverty has. I know the effects that not having housing have. So even when we're doing, um, but while we're also uh, working to create um, opportunities where people can uh, truly rehabilitate when they are incarcerated, we also need to think about the communities that they're going back to. So even as someone is getting the services they need, they're still being released into communities where they don't have housing options, they don't have economic options, they don't have health care, right? Or they're being policed in, 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 a, in, a, in a manner that may be more, more aggressively. Um, so um, how, how are we addressing those situations? How's the educational system being reformed? You know, so, you know, yes, while whenever we have youth that enter either in juvenile justice or entering into um, an, an adult facility, for sure, we want to be able to give uh, give them opportunities to receive an education, give them opportunities to get job training, and help them reintegrate society. But they're also, but these these are this is the same communities um, where they didn't have the resources in their schools, the same communities where they didn't have resources to get uh, to get vocational training before entering the system. So we need to. So in order for us to, in my opinion, uh, in order for us to truly see a shift. In, in lowering the amount of people who are, are, are entering in um, prisons and jails. We need to start focusing on uh, rebuilding our communities, reinvesting money into our communities. I think that's key. What you're saying there is that we need to look at why they were arrested in the first place. And oftentimes it's going to go back to exactly what you were saying is looking at housing, looking at what's going on in the community, looking at heavily policed areas because a lot of times people mm -hmm. are arrested on what I would call survival crimes. I mean, they're just trying to get their needs met and their needs that they don't have and should have. Um, and that's what I see a lot of in my own community. P poverty can breed yeah. desperation. Right? Yeah. And, and people have survival. Uh, people have a, a need to survive. People have a need to provide maybe for their family or their children or whatever brings them to uh, making some decisions that unfortunately have, you know, long lasting repercussions yeah. in their life and, and they're not giving. But we also need to think about, uh, are we offering people true second chances? You know, are we condemning people by 
for mistakes, whether they're uh, survival uh, crimes or, or they could be crimes of opportunity. It could be a lot of things, right? So I also don't want to blanket everyone, right? So while we, while we really want to have opportunities to give people uh, a second chance and give people opportunities where they can do better um, with new skills, you know, uh, with new services, you know, whether that's seeing a therapist or uh, maybe, you know, jails and prisons have become de facto psychiatric wards in, in, in our country. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that hanging place? I mean, maybe some we can start looking at some of the, the changes done during the Reagan administration and, and, and then with the uh, first Bush administration. Um, you know, so where's the money going to? Why were state psychiatric wards closed? Why is, why is there not mental health care? Uh, uh, being provided to people in the earlier stages so that way they're not end up in jails and, and, and the only place where they're getting uh, the mental care is when they're incarcerated. So uh, we need to start thinking about how we can help people before they're in the system uh, while still confronting recidivism, you know, while still mm-hmm. partnering with organizations um, to help people who are formerly incarcerated. Definitely we need to do that um, if we truly want to get our population down to where we can start seeing facilities uh, across the U.S. close um, or shrink, you know, but we need to have our populations of people being incarcerated shrink. Um, so, you know, we have a cash bail system. You know, some people are not in jail uh, because they're criminals. You know, some people are in jail because they can't afford to bail out. Right. You know, so if you're economically disadvantaged, you just don't have the money. You know, so if the judge says a bail at $1,000, you, you might become... you likely coming from a situation where you don't have a thousand dollars you know there's people in jail with ten dollar bills twenty dollar bills one dollar bills and i'm not kidding it's not not, it's people in jail who have one dollar bail you cannot pay you know the average life expectancy of a correction officer nationally is only 59 years old you know uh, i think of most people i told hey listen i made a career for you and you make a die you're gonna die probably you have a high likelihood of dying at only 59 years old very few people will sign up for that mm-hmm. for that kind of work you know so and and that's a tragedy in of itself so we we that right there uh shows you that we need to examine what we're doing with and we examine what the effects of the way that we've handled uh correctional uh, facilities in the u.s and what that effect has had on individuals who are passing through the system uh, whether they're incarcerated or people who are working in the system. And we see that this has an effect on everyone's life. And, it, and it's been primarily, I guess we can all agree, it's been primarily negative to this point. Mm-hmm. So we need to create environments that, that are, 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 are going to produce positive results. And we're going to produce life and not produce death. Um, so, you know, but that, that's a... That's a yeah, challenge. I think what you say at the end is right there is important because I think going back again, it's like you have people in communities that are suffering from the disastrous effects of poverty. And so I feel like for me, I would start there. It's like, what do we do outside the prison and jail that would also have an effect on prison and jail? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, if anyone, you know, anyone's listening has an opportunity to kind of look into, um, look into how New York, New York City is approaching um, not just closing Rikers, but just approaching reforming um, the way, reforming and repairing our relationships with our, our citizens, or reporting and repairing mm-hmm. relationships we have with our communities between law enforcement and our communities. You know, uh, so we need to approach everything. Um, there's a lot of issues 
that we need to solve. You know, um, we have over 70% of the students in New York City are either black or Latino, but we still have schools in the city that are 90% white. You know, so we still have school segregation, you mm -hmm. know, not, you know, obviously not on the books, right? But we still have some de facto school segregation. So we have, we have to start examining how our society as a whole is constructed and what we're doing to integrate and, and, create, and create opportunities for everyone within the city uh, and create equity. If we're able to create equity, we're create, able to cre create equitable opportunities for people across the city, will we see crime reduce? Will we see, um, you know, uh, when you use crimes of desperation reduce? Will we see the jail population mm -hmm. reduce? So, um, you know, we give people opportunities, um, then we will see, uh, see less in my opinion. Do you think you'd like to see a, a world without jails and prisons? The reason why I, I avoid, do I want to you know, like abolish all jails and prisons is because um, that's a, a long goal. And for me to focus on the 10 years when Rikers closes, which is again a, a, a goal, it's a clear goal, and, and, a little, and, a, and I would be happy to see it happen. Um, but I'm not willing to sit back and wait for it to happen. Because what I would be doing is conceding that there is a certain level of casualties that I'm willing to accept until that happens. And I'm not willing to do that. During this 10 years, there's still going to be an 18-year-old, 19-year-old person that's gonna come into the to this system. you know. And I'm not willing to just leave it as, I'm not willing to just leave it as is, the way it's always conducted, and allow that person's life to suffer while I'm waiting for this utopian society where it just disappears. In the meantime, someone, someone and I've chosen personally myself, um, speaking for myself and no one else is DOC, but I've chosen personally for myself to want to get involved in that and, and have an impact and do what I can do to make it a better, make it better, make it better for people who are going to, to encounter, encounter our system until it does change, until it does reach that point where we can say we no longer need these these systems anymore. I never looked that far down because it, it, it would take my eye off of what I have to deal with um, mm -hmm. in the present. Yeah. Great. Well, Latif, thank you so much for your time and all your information and all your thoughts. It was really awesome to talk to you and hear about the work that you do. So thank you so much. Oh, I appreciate it being on. Okay, that was uh, Latif Taylor that you were listening to. We want to thank him for uh, spending time with Indigo Radio. We're going to go to a quick song, and we're going to come back with Michaela and our um, second part talking about prison abolition. Uh, this is Aretha Franklin with Bridge Over Troubled Water.
Welcome back. You're listening to 107.7 LP, WVEW, your community radio station, and this is Indigo Radio. I'm Michaela Sims. I'm here with Anna Mullaney. And we're really focusing on prison and prison abolition. We heard a lot from Latif Taylor, who works at Rikers Island, and he said so many poignant things. I think that it's really important to think that we don't live in a utopia and that he he talked about changing society, and until society changes, he's willing to do the work that he does for the people who are caught up in the prison system. And before we get to our next interview, I was just thinking, I don't know if, how many of you have read, but if you haven't, you should look at Abolition Democracy by Angela Davis, which is a really short book. And it's an interview with Angela Davis, and she talks about drawing from W.E.D. Du Bois' idea of abolition and abolition democracy, what it is, and it's about not only just tearing down of institutions, but also the building up and the creating of new institutions. I think that it's really important to think about that as part of the process, that it's just not about destroying something, but also building something new, a world that we want. Uh, and so and those things happen together. We talked to Justin Helapulale, and he talked to us about his work that he's doing in Greenfield and his own ideas about what abolition means. And so we're going to go right into that interview right now. Thank you. This is Anna and Michaela for Indigo Radio. Justin, do you want to introduce yourself? 
name is Justin Hele Pololoi, and I'm a collective member with Great Falls Books Through Bars, and I volunteer in some of the jails in Western Mass, and also a graduate student studying mass incarceration. And Justin, you were with us last week, but can you just remind us what your work is with those two organizations? Sure. So I've, I've been a part of the Elm Street Think Tank, uh, which is a group that meets inside the um, jail in Greenfield in the Franklin County Sheriff's Office, and it's composed of educators and people who are incarcerated, and we do different kinds of projects that could be like artistic or literary or discussions. And then through the Great Falls Book Bars program, um, I work with an all-volunteer group, and we send books to people who are incarcerated across the country. And last week, we talked a lot about current conditions in the jail, but this week we're trying to focus on this principle of prison abolition and what it means. What do you say that prison abolition means? For me, I try to hold on to just the most, I think, basic idea of wanting to live in a world where there aren't prisons or jails. Why? Um, I think it, it comes, I know for me personally, like fundamentally from a feeling that it's kind of like the simplistic, it just feels wrong to have a human in a cage in, of any kind. And, and then so like within the, so starting from there and then understanding that the, the world as it exists includes that, right. um, how to work towards a world where that isn't the case, where that doesn't happen, where that isn't seen as necessary or seen as something that is just part of our society. So often I feel like, and I'm full of these adages, but you know, you do the t crime, you do the time is what mm -hmm. people say. Mm -hmm. What do you say to that when you say like, what are you going to do? Like you did a crime, like what happens to those people in this, under this principle of prison abolition? Totally. I think that, that how I try to, to think about it now um, is in really questioning how both effective incarceration has been and is, um, even by the sort of the most kind of like generous assessment of, of the effects of incarceration. So they use a measure of recidivism rate, which is the um, rate in which people who've been um, incarcerated are reincarcerated, and that's sort of used as a measure of success. Mm -hmm. um, and those rates are already pretty high. So it's, there's a very high likelihood if you've been incarcerated that you'll be incarcerated again. Um, so for me, for me, starting from that standpoint, like even by this generous assessment, I say generous because it's not measuring um, how successfully someone who's been through the system is able to get a job or provide right. for their family or feel fulfilled or give back to the community. Like all it's measuring is whether or not they end up back in jail or prison. And even by that measure, it's already failing. And so coming from that standpoint to say like, well, this thing that we rely on or that is such so present by, by its own estimates doesn't work in mm -hmm. at least half of all cases. So anything that doesn't work half the time for me seems like a fundamentally flawed thing. And that just feels like really, even like within that argument of we have to address crime, it's not doing that. It's not even doing that part of it. And that, and that, sort of perspective that if you um, do a crime, then you, then you should be punished and, and then um, that, that it doesn't even work on that sort of simplistic level. I find sort of frustrating to then having conversation with like, even by that, like logic, it doesn't work. And that leaves out all these other things of, 
of asking sort of how it got to that point in the first place right. and why are all of our resources go towards addressing harm after it's happened or not all of our resources but so many resources go to like well once it's a crime then the whole state apparatus can snap into action and then we'll we'll, we'll have all these modes of intervening through police or through the courts or through like mandated services where we're, what are the other avenues like before that where like more support or other other kinds of like skills or relationships could be developed to not have it get to the point where yeah I think just like having our justice system um, so much influenced by this idea of do the crime do the time I think just has such a like a like a passive like waiting for harm to happen and I think it's so interesting that we call it the justice system and it's like this lady in this long robe holding the scales yeah oh and that's right i forgot she's blind right but we know that poor folks white folks and brown and black folks who are poor are the ones that are the most impacted by this system and so if they weren't incarcerated what would they do and i think you're saying Mm -hmm. that look they need services they people need things and they're not getting their basic needs met on at all in society. I'm wondering then, with that in mind, how do you go about your work with the collective and with the books, with that in the back of your head? Yeah, no, that's a great question because, so within kind of our like organizing principles, we emphasize an orientation towards abolition and towards working towards abolition. But in our like day-to-day, activities like what we're doing is very small scale sending books to people who are incarcerated like nothing there isn't anything on one level like especially radical or um transgressive about that or necessarily or it feels that way anyway it feels like kind of a reform um, oriented approach and i think for me like how we work towards abolition is by um, on on two sides, helping people connect um, with resources, with access to books, or with access to ideas who are incarcerated and who like have limited access and prob and in all likelihood because people are coming from communities that um, have been deprived of resources, like have always been deprived of access to resources and to books. That that the jail and prison is also just an extension of of other aspects of life for people in a lot of communities. Mm -hmm. So connecting books on that level to people who don't have as much access to things like, as like fundamental as books or as like simple as books um, for me is important. But then the other piece is connecting volunteers to people outside who might not have any direct connection to to prisons or jails, Mm -hmm. who've never been inside, um, don't have any of their own family who are incarcerated, but are interested in this project, then come and volunteer and then read requests, read letters from people who are inside. And I've seen it just like very much change um, someone's idea about people who are incarcerated when they see like, oh wow, there's this letter and it's talking about all of these person's interests and hobbies and um, what their plans are for after they get out. And, and I think seeing people see other people as humans who are like diverse and like complicated and complex, I think is a necessary step towards encouraging people to think of people who are incarcerated not as monsters 
um, but as people like themselves in some ways, in many ways. And, and it's like a really small step and mm -hmm. it feels like really small, but then also feels huge when you see like someone whose position has shifted um, just from interacting in this way. And yeah, and I think that's something that we ask ourselves too, as well as like, to what extent are we helping to move towards abolition and to what extent are we making prisoner jail easier to make it like right. sort of less controversial it's like oh no look there's so many resources so it's not that bad so why don't we continue and and so the other other like activities we do are hosting film screenings and discussions about incarceration and doing sort of more public outreach work too to talk about both the state of things as they are and that there are currently you know millions of people under incarceration or under surveillance um, or state supervision who need resources and that we can and should support and would ideally not have to be doing that. And so like, how can we yeah, keep working or keep thinking about that and what our role is and how to support other projects that are working towards making prisons obsolete. So um, mm. like in Western Mass, there's a program at Holyoke High School called Palante that's a transformative justice um, program where students are in in circle process um, working out conflicts with each other and with themselves and they frame their work as intervening in the um, school to prison pipeline because it's keeping um, students out of disciplinary processes that in communities like Holyoke often lead to incarceration and wow. so like promoting work that other people are doing and as a platform as a relatively non-controversial platform as Books Through Bars. So we get a lot of people who come to us and want to volunteer who don't necessar aren't necessarily abolitionists or see prison abolition as like a realistic or even necessarily desirable goal. Right. Um, but still like are interested in this book program that doesn't, like it's, it's appealing to a large swath of people. And so it's an opening to have more discussions. And then right. people are like, yeah, how could we? What would it take to not have prisons like what would we need like I agree like we don't have those like programs or institutions or, or like relationships set up or not enough of them but we could or we could cultivate them and yeah what would it look like or what would we need to do that or conversations that we can then have like afterwards yeah as we're packing books or as right. like... I feel like uh something you said really stuck with me about um, the way that you use volunteers to connect with people that are inside is also a way of humanizing. And I think that that, when I think about prison abolition, uh, I think that prisons and jails do everything to dehumanize people and also silence their voices. And so thinking about abolition I feel like is part of that process of humanizing people. And also I think about, it made me think that prison abolition is not just about the prison. It's also about humanizing the poor. So thinking about what do we do outside mm -hmm. of prisons mm -hmm. and jails that is also connected mm -hmm. because there's so much criminalization of the poor and dehumanizing of poor people that make up the majority of, of people incarcerated mm -hmm. that you can connect prison abolition to that also. For sure. And I think that this idea of reforming something is just that. So you're, you're not making it better. You're just making mm. it again, the same thing. Um, and so 
I can see working with books and engaging with people who are incarcerated as something going beyond reform through how we perceive what we're doing and how we do it, how we engage with it every day, which is, I feel like, the way what you're talking about. Because our, our hope, I know, that is for a better world and kinder, gentler prisons are not going to make that. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was uh, Michaela and myself talking with Justin. And we're going to go to just a quick song break, and we'll be back with the remainder of his interview. This is for the homies. Facing life. And for the homies. Serving life. Another rainy day up in Seattle Every day a constant battle Bitch, you gon' get stepped on like a stone If you fragile, clouds engulf the sky Such a beautiful sight Walked home to a letter from my ex He got life, and it's got me contemplating About how fast your life can be taken Pull the trigger, no faking Boom, a rude awakening Now we stuck in a cell where no one can hear you yell Or scream your dreams Now they don't mean anything I've been crying non-stop And it's not because I miss them I'm just sad, disappointed in the rain If you ain't packing no weapon Cause the streets is no joke Now this ain't no laughing matter Either your dreams get shattered Or your brain gets splattered Welcome to the streets Come inside my tragic kingdom I'll show you what we learned About the years Hell of wisdom Corrupted by revenge I contributed to the cycle Best friends with murderers Life with snipers and psychos Welcome to the streets Come inside my tragic kingdom I'll show you what we learned About the years Hell of wisdom Corrupted by revenge I contributed to the cycle That was uh, Reverie with Tragic Kingdom, and uh, this is Anna and Michaela with Indigo Radio. If you're just joining us, we're here every Sunday at noon, and you can catch us streaming online at wvew.org. We also will post this show on our SoundCloud and Facebook page. So we're just going to go back to uh, Justin talking about prison abolition, and we'll be back um, to round out the show after the interview. Miriam Kaba, who does a lot of stuff around prison abolition, and she right now is working in um, New York, but she's worked a lot with women survivors incarcerated. One of the things that she says that I think is really helpful is she talks about 
deciding for her what a good reform is, is that she feels like it's pretty simple. She says she just asks herself the question, does this reform put more money into Department of Corrections and police, or does it help people? And that that's how she looks at it, um, which I feel like is a helpful way to see it, because one of the examples she uses is video cam cameras. Mm -hmm. And she says that is a reform I'm against, because that is putting more money right. to the police. Um, and I think that I would like to hear your thoughts on that, too, is that often people will say, well, you can't just close all the prisons. What are you going to do about that? And because they make that jump of like a prison abolitionist means that today we're going to shut down all the prisons. Uh, what do you say to that or what do you think about that? I mean, my initial reaction is that, but we could. And like in the, so in the um, 70s in Massachusetts, the commissioner for the Department of Corrections was actually closing prisons. Like prisons were being phased out. There were more than they needed. Um, so it's also a thing that has happened historically not that long ago, could happen again. I think going back to, to how recidivism and um, like success is measured, I think there hasn't been enough um, pressure on proponents of prisons to demonstrate that they do more good than harm. Mm. I think that that case actually hasn't been settled. And so just because something is really familiar mm -hmm. um, or seems like it's been around for a while doesn't mean that we need to keep it around. Like there's so many other institutions that, mm -hmm. um, that we're working on removing or phasing out that mm. I think, like I don't have an objection to thinking within those terms. Mm. Like, okay, so what if we did close this? What would happen? What would be needed? I think it's helpful in, uh, in terms of like framing sort of the urgency of it. Because right now we're relying on them to do so much, um, as we like, talked about, of being the like providers of mental health services or of treatment services and this sort of like catch-all um, institution that puts an immense amount of pressure on the people running it to have this sort of unrealistic expectation. I think, yeah, I think it's helpful to think in those terms. Um, but yeah, but it is know, controversial or... Well, and I think also it's the thought of how we think about resources and that I think when people say that, there's this thought that there's a scarcity of resources. So like, where are you going to how where are all these people going to go? But the fact is, is that we actually have money to put into housing. It's that we don't. So we all that those money, like that money goes into different things, right? So if we think about like our military budget, mm -hmm. or think about all the money that is going into maintaining these prisons. So I think that's a thought too, is how how money is spent. Right. Well, yeah, and how goods are distributed, or there's so much housing stock that just goes unlived in, or is like kept in um, speculation, um, as well as food. There's mm. like something like 40% of food in the U.S. is, um, is thrown yeah. out. And so, yeah, it's just like a, a distribution of resources. We like have all the means to support people, but choose, yeah, choose to distribute them. Or there are structures that shape how they're distributed in ways that go counter to that idea. I mean, it goes along with the idea of scarcity. Um, and that mm -hmm. is what the myth of capitalism does, is that there isn't enough for everyone. There isn't enough, there isn't enough, there isn't enough. And so we're constantly being told that, and that there's survival of the fittest. So on one time there isn't enough, and so 
only those of us on top can get mm. it. Um, but we know that's not true. That there's plenty, and that the people on top have plenty. And the question is, what are they going to give up? Or are the people going to demand that they give up for the rest of us to live? Yeah. And I think, too, like a mistrust in like other kinds of like interpersonal and social resources. The idea of that if, if prisons go away, if the police go away, then we'll just be left on our own and we don't have any resources or capacity to address harm or to work out our issues. And I think sort of reframing that idea to say like, no, people solve problems all the time. People in their own communities have had ways historically and currently to to work things out. But if those practices aren't seen as valuable or encouraged or practiced, then, then of course, then we're going to rely on the institutions that say that like, we're necessary to, to protect everybody. Um, so it's in, yeah, so I think in terms of thinking of like material resources, but then also like the, the ways that, that, that we interact with each other, like we have so much capacity that, that, that isn't encouraged, that isn't drawn on, that should be, or that could be, but isn't because we rely on calling 911 for a dispute with a neighbor. Right. That could have been worked out otherwise, or because because yeah, I don't know. Like, oh, what what can I do in this moment? Because I haven't talked to other people in my community. How are we going to respond if this happens? Because I don't have I don't know any other like place to call with the capacity to respond to a medical emergency that isn't going to be tied to um, the police as well. Well, I well I know that it's almost impossible just in my experience, but um, just because of the way the system is set up, so. One thing for me is that there is this, the police, I never think of as protecting me, but as protecting private property. Mm-hmm. And so as long as there's private property, then mm-hmm. the, the police are necessary. The other piece of that is you cannot call the ambulance, an ambulance really, without calling right. 911, right. without calling the police. And if I call the police, when I call 911, they're asking me what for. And so, like, my grandmother fell, and I thought she was having a stroke. They only sent an ambulance. But if I said, my grandmother's acting strange, right, they might not send an ambulance first. They might decide to send the police, and I can't influence that. If I call rescue, they're going to say, call 911. And people mm-hmm. have been I've shot done, tried after that, right, totally. that we've seen in the last couple of years, or... Probably for a while. Yeah, because you cannot call rescue directly. They'll tell you right away, call 911 dispatcher, mm-hmm. and they make that decision. They, mm-hmm. they won't even take that call that, that way. They don't take calls like that. Right. So it's set up that way. So it's like, what, based on what I say, they make that decision. I cannot, and which is mm-hmm. why sometimes I have not called 911 when I've seen things happening. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I know that, like, based on what I say, they're going to call the cops. Mm-hmm. And you don't know, and I know Brattleboro Police has a, um, a social worker, but they only have one. Uh, and it's a woman, and she only works during the day. Officers, yeah. And she works, like, office hours, mm-hmm. 9 to 5. Mm-hmm. So, like, if it's outside of that, and there are certain cases where they'll send a social worker with the police, mm-hmm. but there's only one of her. As someone who's working in domestic and sexual violence in this community, I think just the stark, also, contradiction of... There's a domestic dispute, and definitely the go-to is is calling the cops, and that the cops show up and often violence is met with violence. And I've seen that happen 
years ago in the courtroom I've been in where defendant was, it was around a restraining order. He got a little bit unruly in court and was saying stuff back to the judge. And with a push of a button, there were five cops came into the room and one of them went right up to him and sort of like, you know, did a posture in which you could see his gun. And I was watching this happen and the cop came over to me after this was sort of, everything sort of settled down. And I asked him, I said, why did you do that? And he said, well, you know, I just want to show, I want to just kind of throw my weight around a little bit and scare him. And I just thought of the, um, the craziness in that moment of here is a woman who has been beaten by this guy and is trying to get a restraining order. And the way that that is met is through intimidation and violence. And so I think it's Angela Davis who always says this is the prison is another violent system. So why would you meet violence with violence? This is Anna for Indigo Radio, and that was Michaela and myself talking with Justin Helipolale about reform and prison abolition. And we want to just uh, thank Justin again for being with us in the studio last week and spending time talking with us uh, about their work and, and thoughts about mass incarceration. Michaela, I'm going to uh, bring it back to you. Yes. Um, do you have any last thoughts as we round well, out this part two? I was just thinking to close out with the words of someone who's currently incarcerated from prisons and punishment. This is a call for the abolition of prisons. And just a, a word to think about how we garner hope in our fight for justice on a day-to-day basis when there are people on the inside who also need hope and reason to wake up every morning. This particular prisoner says, Abolition and revolution are not new. History is replete with stories of struggle of people on the bottom of the social ladder, banding together and organizing to bring radical change for the better in their lives and the lives of future generations. Some struggles succeed, some fail, and others are ongoing. I do not know how long it will take to to abolish prisons. That is akin to asking me how much air is in the universe. It's a real challenge, and our search for answers must be incessant. And I just think that we just hold the axe to the grindstone Mm -hmm. every day for justice and in our own ways. Yeah, I like that. It reminds me of something I recently heard in an interview where, actually, I'm just realizing it was Miriam Kaba again, who Mm -hmm. I like to follow. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But she said, hope is a discipline. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's connected to what you just were saying, For that sure. it's incessant, it's a, a long struggle, and that to be hopeful is not just this sort of uh, emotional thing. It also needs to be a discipline, um, and that we need that to right. keep going. There ain't no utopia. Right, exactly. <laughs> we struggle for this world to make it better. Right. Well, you've been listening to Indigo Radio. and. Thank you. We want to thank all our guests that um, helped us put these two parts together. We will definitely post the recorded show on our Facebook page today, and it will be linked to our SoundCloud. And we're going to go out with uh, Sam Cooke. A change is going to come. Just like the 
But I know 